Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers who enjoy talking about movie franchises and associated media. And for this podcast, we are pleased to welcome back a uh, previous guest of ours. We've got on the line our good friend, Chris Rogers. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Keith. Hi to you and hi to Simon. Uh, Nice of you to invite me back. Yeah, well, we've had you uh, on a couple of times previous. We've discussed things like Miami Vice and James Bond and various things. And uh, the mission that we've all chose to accept tonight is to... uh, try and discuss the Mission Impossible franchise in less than two hours, which, uh, which will be quite a, quite a tough mission to pull off. Um, and obviously, we were recording this uh, on the day that the, the new film, the sixth film in the film franchise, Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, actually opens today. So by the time this podcast airs, that will be in the cinemas. Um, but uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> so, guys, I mean, Mission Impossible, before we get into the films, uh, to talk about sort of the larger franchise, um, did any of you you guys know the TV series prior to uh, the first film coming out in 96? I only knew it briefly and um, tangentially. I think I caught one or two episodes in the 1980s, uh, probably on one of the terrestrial channels on repeat somewhere. Um, And it's odd because in a way, looking back on it now with all the history of the films and so on, I think I probably would quite enjoy it because even if you leave aside the links to sort of caper movies and heist movies and things like that, um, it is the sort of thing I would probably quite like. But oddly enough, at the time, it, it just didn't really kind of gain much traction with me. I suspect I was probably too seduced by the real kind of shoot 'em up type programs like the A-Team, because um, that was about the time that I first saw a, a one or two episodes. But um, yeah, as I say, it, it's, I saw a couple, remember a few scenes, but um, nothing really kind of hooked me at the time. Fair enough. And you, Simon? Oh, I used to watch this a lot when I was a kid. Um, I remember when it was originally seeing it on BBC Two, and then uh, when it was on Channel Four as well. So it was it was one of those shows I grew up with, you know, like this and Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek. So it was it was one of those shows that was would be on about six pm uh, on a weekday evening, and uh, yeah, I used to used to love it. No, uh, well, I'm kind of the same story here. I mean, I've, I've got my, uh, I guess, my dad to thank uh, for this one because um, we watched it on BBC Two. And again, I guess it must have been the early 80s or whatever uh, when I was a kid. And it was something that dad had enjoyed, I guess, the first time round uh, when, when it was on and ha- hadn't seen a lot of them because I, I don't know how much had been shown in the uk up to that point but um we used to uh sit down as a family family regularly and uh, and watch this and uh you know i have to say i i really enjoyed it um one of the it's, it's funny looking back now one of the interesting things about the way that uh the bbc's that obviously the the foreign syndication package that they they had um was that they used to actually not screen them in any particular order. And what was interesting about that was 
um, and it wasn't until later years when I when I caught him on DVD and whatever that I realized this. But because um, essentially Peter Graves kind of look never really changed. I mean, he was the guy who played Jim Phelps was this guy, you know, with silvery hair and uh, that he always had sort of side parted and whatever. Um, it made it look like he was picking a different team for the for the particular mission each week because they'd mix it up a bit. So, um, you, you know, when, when you got to like by the third season or fourth season, maybe uh, Leonard Nimoy had replaced Martin Landau as the sort of master of disguise character. But so he essentially did the same thing. Paris, which was Nimoy's character, did a similar thing to um, to Roland Hand, who was who was uh, uh, Lando's character. But because obviously they were they're quite different physical types and whatever, I used to think it was you know he was selecting the right person for that mission, <laughs> and so it kind of worked really nicely that BBC put them on out of sequence because it didn't have that repetition that the show had where he would always pick you know from his file. The, the, who happened to be the main stars of, of that particular um, season. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, I, rem- I remember that, yeah. I remember yeah. that indeed. Let, let me ask, as the one who's the kind of outsider on the TV series then, because it's good that you two have got that really strong kind of memory of it, what attracted you to it particularly? Um, it's one thing to be brought to a series, but what kept you interested? Well, I mean, for, for, for me, it was a mixture of things. I mean, I found the... I found the wonderful theme music by uh, Lalo Schifrin, yeah, um, really hooked me in every week. Uh, you, you know, I, I love that, that kind of, um, uh, I, I don't know, it just always, it always made me, you, you see the match being lit and the, the, and the fuse going and it always sort of drew me in. Um, but also, I mean, I was, I was a fan of all the sort of spy genre uh, stuff anyway. I mean, obviously, you know, as we've discussed in length, big James Bond fan and whatever as a kid. And, um, you know, I kind of, this, this mixed some of those sort of, uh, gadget and, and spy like elements and cold war elements. It mixed that with the sort of work working as a team. Uh, so it kind of, it kind of almost mixed that with, with, with the sort of star Trek thing about everybody working together to, to, to solve something. And, uh, you know, I mean, quite interestingly, this was released the, uh, the same year as, as, as Star Trek by Desilu Studios. Um, you know, they were trying to get away from the, the sitcoms and branch out into other TV drama. So of course they had, you know, Star Trek is their sci-fi action show and, and they had Mission Impossible as their, um, you, you, you know, grounded in the high, in inverted commas, real world, show and i think you know pretty much while star trek was being filmed in the, in the various um sound stages on paramount lot uh this this stuff was sort of being filmed on the back lot you know in in posing as eastern europe or or whatever but um but yeah i, I just i just found it really really intriguing tv and and good stories what about you simon uh it's same here i mean I was a big, um, you know, sci-fi fan and I loved my uh, spy thrillers and stuff. And I enjoyed the show because um, it wasn't sort of like James Bond where, you know, there's a lot of fighting and stuff. It usually was, you know, they had to think their way out of situations and using, um, 
you know the tricks of the spy trade to to complete their mission um yeah it was just you know ending characters as well so you know it was something that just sort of brought me back to it time after time and also you've got to remember back in the 80s as well we only had four channels <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Well, it depends on the 80s you're talking about, Simon, actually. But oh, yes, true, uh, yes. Right. Well, we had three channels and then four. Indeed. Mm. I, I think that's really interesting. And I think also it's interesting looking at the um, program in terms of both the format, the medium, TV, um, and also the context of the times in which it was made. And you can see how it would have worked. I mean, Keith's already outlined sort of how that came about in terms of the studio and about playing different markets. But it's also interesting, obviously, uh, in terms of small team dramas or adventures work well on television. Um, they always have, they still do. Um, and also, as you, I think both said, the nods to spy, um, the spy genre and the Cold War and things like that, but also taking that kind of resolutely non-violent approach um, which is also actually a link back in a way to the Star Trek idea, actually, as you were saying, um, Keith. Um, and, you know, you can read it as a practical uh, issue in terms of the difficulties of actually funding and producing things like that using the technology of the day. Um, but also it's, it's quite obviously making a moral point as well, as Star Trek did as well. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing as well was the whole sort of disguise element to it as well. Because mm. as much as I love Bond... Bond never really got in disguise. He might no. turn up and say, hi, I'm somebody else. And then after a little while, somebody will go, no, actually, you're James Bond. <laughs> you know, but um, the whole sort of the, the masks and disguises, you know, that whole element was uh, was great fun. And it was, it was, and I think at the time, it was a new element to that kind of storytelling. Because I don't yeah. think... Um, that you know they they might be pretending to be somebody else because they're a spy, but they wouldn't be the whole sort of dressing up and disguising themselves to be somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really played on misdirect yeah. quite quite often yeah. with that whole thing, and uh, uh, and they did it very well for the time. I think you know. And of course, the other thing that set it apart was that the beginning of every episode, you got the the tape saying. Uh, you know, if you choose to, you know, this tape will self-destruct. You know, if you choose this mission, um, here are your team members. You know, you don't, you, you didn't get that in anything else. And that's that's the one thing everybody remembers about the show. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point because thinking about it now, there are dozens and dozens of, of programs, even then, 40, 50 years ago, um, that are still known and enjoyed now. But there are very, very few, actually, when you think about it. If you divorce the odd character um, or a good theme tune like Hawaii Five O or general concepts like shooting people and not getting hurt, as you find in the 18th, <laughs> there are very, very few American shows from that period that actually have a really, you know, that have really embedded themselves into popular culture in that way. And obviously you could argue that a lot of that was down to the success of the films that we're about to talk about. But I think that's a really interesting point, Simon, that you say that, because also it shows, as with, as Keith was saying, you know, a fairly audacious take on the idea of disguise and or dressing up, if you want to put it like that. Um, 
it's also quite interesting and quite innovative to come up with that introduction as well, because that clearly was different, as you both said. Um, and it was good that it held your attention, you know, even 20 years later when hmm. the product and the availability of stuff, even with four channels, um, had expanded. And it was good. It's really interesting hearing you both sort of say that that really worked for you. Yeah. Well, also, it's that, um, Adam, that everybody, that people use, keep it simple. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it's a simple way of setting up the story each week, and it's very efficient. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because if I, I was going to mention, and perhaps we might come onto this, um, at how the program influenced other programs that followed. Mm. Um, but again, if you think about a couple of those, or ones that were kind of, that were actually around almost at the time, actually in in that respect. So if you think about Thunderbirds, for example, which was pretty much bang on the same year, um, you've got that brilliant idea of showing you, you know, a 20 second montage of what you're about to enjoy for the next hour um, before getting into a really good musical hook uh, and then taking you through the story. So it's quite interesting, again, that you've got a similar way there on either side of the Atlantic. And of course, Thunderbirds was very much influenced by American things. Um, of that period, bringing you in and, and doing something a bit different. You know, it was it was it was it was funny how uh, you, you know the whole thing with the uh, having to edit new credits for for ev- opening credits for every episode. Um, you know, that sort of became a vogue thing because uh, you know, Space nineteen ninety nine that that Lando and Bane's uh, who Lando and Bane who are on this actually left to do. Um, used a similar sort of format. And then, uh, you know, Ron Moore, when he did the reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, decided to take that sort of, uh, you know, um, aesthetic for the intro as well and show you sort of, you know, really brief clips of what's about to come with with no spoilers, you know. <laughs> so. Interesting, because at the moment, I'm partway through watching all of Alias um, again. And... What's interesting about that is, although, which is, for those who don't know, and there can't be that many, um, a spy show from the early 2000s, it's interesting that although it was quite innovative in a lot of ways, and particularly when you see the first um, season, which really holds up well, its opening credits, when it got into its run, were actually incredibly pedestrian, which is kind of interesting because it's very strong in a lot of other respects. So it's interesting seeing something that, you know, has elements of the Mission Impossible genre, um, in fact, quite a few elements, actually. Um, Sydney disguising herself every week, um, albeit not perhaps to the extent in MI. But, you know, there are a number of elements that follow through there. So it's interesting to see that, again, 50 years ago, they were doing things a little bit snazzier and a bit cleverer um, in some ways than we do now. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, I always used to describe Alias, which was a show I was a big fan of, but I used to describe it back in the day to people i said it's sort of lara croft meets mission impossible yeah with a bit of uh with a bit of a sort of soap drama thing going on as well you know so especially in the first couple of seasons so um so uh yeah I mean, and of course uh, as we will find during our discussion here um you, you know that there is a massive link between alias and the mission impossible film franchise so um you know that that's that's quite a good lead-in, actually. <laughs> that is a very good point. Um, just before though, perhaps we could have a quick chat about that um, 
programs that have been influenced by Mission Impossible because, and again, it's kind of, I'd be interested to hear your takes, both of you on this, because as fans of it, you know, some time ago, you will, I think, will probably be more alive to it than me. But even from my kind of fairly shallow acquaintance with the series, thinking about this podcast, it was quite interesting because one program that I did start to get more interested in um, back in the 80s as a first run show uh, was MacGyver, which of course was very explicitly launched as a non-violent um, series, not in a kind of, you know, namby-pamby way, but as a genuine alternative to the sort of action stuff that I was obviously a massive fan of. Um, and whilst it didn't have the disguise elements necessary of MI, you obviously had the kind of ingenuity idea and about, you know, non-violent resolution of things, ingenious resolution of things. Uh, and again, talking about the A-Team, I think you have to at least suggest that there is a slight nod um, in the A-Team's famous shed build sequence. <laughs> Freddie, who did the last act, um, through to MacGyver and through back to Mission Impossible. Uh, and again, you know, you can laugh as much as you like, as we all will do and have done, um, about the endless supply of ammunition that never kills anyone. But it is really interesting when you look at those little ingenuity bits, the little builds. Um, and actually, Hannibal himself often dressed up, um, completely disguised himself um, to make a lot of the contact. So I think it is quite interesting. You can actually draw some lines through um, there. Um, and I, one thing I do remember is that there was a, another one of Jerry Anderson's series that I was very much into was Terrorhawks. And there was a very, very explicit steal from Mission Impossible in one of the episodes there um, when um, the main guy whose name escapes me, apologies, um, <laughs> but the main leader of the Terrorhawks um, gets one of Zelda's cronies in what they think is a particular setting. And it turns out that the whole thing was a set inside a movie studio on a back lot somewhere, and it was about to be blown up. So there was a very clear link there to Mission Impossible. <laughs> okay, mm. nice one. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I would agree with all those comparisons, really, that you've given. I mean, uh, certainly, yes, the, the A-team, um, you, you know, has, you know, that element where Hannibal, yeah, often was was seen as a master of disguise, much the same as Roland Hand or Paris was in um, in Mission Impossible. So, uh, yeah, there's some definite lines there. And again, a bizarre movie line, I guess, because at one hand, at one point, Joe Carnahan was attached to do a Mission Impossible movie, um, but that kind of fell through. And the next film he did was actually his adaptation of the A-Team. So there you go. Everything is connected. It's, it's weird. <laughs> it's a very holistic podcast. This is good. Hmm. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will say as well, just one last thing on the TV show, and I appreciate we need to, because uh, our mission counter is ticking, so we need to get onto the film <laughs> franchise. But um, when, I, when I went back and sort of uh, re-watched um, some Mission Impossibles when they came out on home media. Um, it did surprise me that actually that, you know, Jim Phelps uh, played by Peter Graves was such a, you know, massive sort of, uh, you know, character in the series. And I'd always assumed that he was always the MI leader, but actually the first season featured a different character called Dan Briggs, who was played by Stephen Hill. And interestingly, the, the setup of that, um, back on the first season rather than having the reel-to-reel -reel audio 
uh, tape recording. Um, it was actually on a on a vinyl record that would would self destruct, which is <laughs> which was something I quite liked when they brought that into the film franchise. Um, you know, I, I, I thought vinyl records self destruct anyway, even in normal life, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's a lot of vinyl fans out there. But yes, yeah, so I, th- I thought that was quite fun. And then the other thing, I don't know whether any of you guys saw this, but Simon often mentions on from his VHS days that you used to remember the trailers on the beginning of um, films that you'd hire or rent out. Mm-hmm. And, oh, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll never forget, I was really excited about it and never actually saw it, was in the 80s, um, they did a revival show. Um, basically, it, it, it came about because of the, um, the, the writer's strike in Hollywood and, and basically kicked out um, two seasons of a sort of Mission Impossible Continues type show, you know, sort of the next generation of Mission Impossible, which they filmed sort of on the cheap in, in Australia. And um, I'll never forget that that they actually had an ad for it, which uh, you see Peter Graves light the match and the fuse go. And then it was a montage of all these scenes from this, uh, from, from this series. And it had like, you know, I recognized it had Anthony Hamilton from cover up and it had Jane Badler from V and it had, you know, all of these sort of TV actors of the time. And uh, it even had the, the son of, uh, Barney Collier from the uh, Greg Morris from the original series and whatever in it and um, it ended and I was like oh I really want to see that and and they didn't release it so it was one of those really annoying things where you'd seen the trailer and never actually got to see the series so um, I know it's available now but at the time um, uh, it wasn't well it certainly wasn't airing where I grew up in the UK anyway so um uh, but I remember being quite excited to see it and uh, I had to wait until the movie series which uh, which we're coming to <laughs> can I just ask um what do you remember what VHS the advert was on oh I've no idea no idea oh okay it some, some some it was probably some action low budget action film that that dad had said would would be good to watch and uh you know, I kind of went along with, um, <laughs> but I, I have no idea. This must have been around, though. I think the, uh, the, the 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 television series was produced around eighty-seven or eighty-eight, so right. it, it was somewhere around that point. But um, and I was like, oh my god, they've redone Mission Impossible, you know. But uh, the next time I saw it redone was in ninety-six when it was Tom Cruise's franchise. So there you go. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Perfect intro there. <laughs> well, there, there you have it. But uh, all right then. So, well, on to the movies, I guess, because that's obviously the main point of this topic. So we are movie heaven, movie hell after all. Um, I mean, I take it you guys both saw the, the first movie on the big screen and, 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 you know, and all the hype leading up to it, right? Yes. I definitely saw it on the big screen. Um I'm not sure, actually. Actually, it's an interesting point about whether there was a lot of hype that I can remember because it was, in a way, it was a while ago. I mean, it was 20-odd years ago, um, and I definitely remember seeing it, and I'll I'll happily talk about that and the impact it made on me. But I don't remember it being particularly hyped to the extent that, you know, I thought, well, I must see that because it's an MI film. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, Cruise was obviously a well-established star by then. Um, 
I knew of Brian De Palma's work. Um, although again, I'm not sure I necessarily connect it. And even now, you know, getting my head around it for this, um, I'm not sure I necessarily connect the two things together, um, De Palma and the Mission Impossible films, even though he did kick off this, the whole franchise. Um, but yeah, I definitely saw it on the big screen. And as with all films and particularly action films, that's an absolute must. Um, it will, it won't quite save a terrible film, but it sure as hell gives a boost to a pretty average one. And I'm not suggesting this is either of those, but um, yeah, definitely saw it when it came out of the pictures. Yeah, you got to remember, this came out in the summer of 96, which was a big summer. So you had Independence Day, you had The Rock, you had Twister, and then you had Mission Impossible. All of which I saw. I remember recently all of them. Yeah, me too. I remember I went to the cinema quite a lot that summer. But I do, (laughs) I remember there was a lot of hype about Mission Impossible. I mean, the, the, the one image they kept using and they still use for it is Tom Cruise being suspended over the um, yeah. over the desk in the in the safe at the CIA headqu- headquarters. Yeah, which which we do need to talk about, not least because that particular sequence has obviously driven the placement of a similar sequence in every single one of the films since. <laughs> yes. yes, yeah, it's it's, it's become their. Uh, that their, their, their internal trope, hasn't it? Yes. <laughs> Which is interesting because it's not even original. It wasn't original at the time. Um, and it's interesting that it has received, you know, it is now linked, you know, indelibly to this particular franchise. Um, but yeah, we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know quite uh, where what it had borrowed that from because I... Uh, you know, I, I know in Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma does like to uh, um, homage uh, other filmmakers and things he's seen, but uh, I don't, I don't remember what I would have seen that scene in before. Well, I would suggest, and it's not an absolute takeoff by any means, but mm. given, as you were saying, quite rightly, given De Palma's own work in that particular era and that genre um, and genres that are similar um, I think it's unlikely that he wasn't aware of a admittedly fairly little known film now called Diamonds starring Robert Shaw it was made in 1975 and it is a heist movie and their particular mission impossible for that gang was to get across one side of a vault to the other without touching the floor Ah. and they, they did it by hanging from the ceiling they didn't do it in the same way, and I yeah. won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, but it was something that I thought of when I watched it, um, and it came to me again just now. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. and I, I think it's there are very few things generally that are absolutely unique and new in movies. That is kind of their strength in a way. Mm. Um, so I'd be surprised if someone of De Palma's kind of background wasn't at least aware of it. I've, he probably was. He probably was aware of it, but uh, I think the mainstream audience wouldn't have. No, hence, he, hence why it was, you know, such a scene stealer. It's yeah. the it's the one thing in the, in the entire film that everybody kind of remembers. Um, I have to say, um, I remember at the time thinking that some of the stuff in it, some of the deaths in it were quite grisly, especially the death of Emilio Estevez's character. Yeah, although I think and it's interesting because, and this again, I think is one of the the features of the way a lot of people now consume films. Um, 
watching them on the telly as opposed to watching them on DVD or on streaming or what have you. Um, and for people of, if I may say, our generation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly films you've never seen before, but even ones that you have seen and then forget and you only ever revisit in that format, um, that scene is almost always cut um, yeah. from TV screenings. Um, even Film 4 now cuts films, which it never used to do. Um, so a lot of people will miss that. And depending on how good, stroke bad, the cut is, you won't even get what happened because sometimes they even cut out where the, the knives kind of flick out. So, ah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's quite an interesting one. Um, it's funny you should say that as well because you're absolutely right to flag that up. And yet, actually, the whole of the rest of the film, and in my view, as we'll no doubt come on to, um, the whole franchise, until you get halfway through, they steer very much away from violence. Yes, okay, there are cars blowing up and people die off screen and things like that, but it's not the sort of film that you'd expect to see something like that in, and indeed you don't until you get up, in my view, to Mission Impossible 3. So it's interesting, and it, you know, maybe they decided to do that to give it a bit of a kind of frisson of you know, something a bit serious. Um, but again, I think it's just a slight trademark of uh, Brian De Palma, because... Uh-huh. Um, because Brian De Palma does, you know, he does violence. He does explicit violence. Absolutely. I mean, I mean his it's films, nice. yeah. I mean, a lot of his films do get cut when they're shown on TV. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it, it's interesting also that the other thing that I think De Palma brings to the film, particularly as it develops, um, and I think for me this, this does go back to his kind of noir, neo-noir background, um, is the atmosphere because although you know we've talked about the one of the key action scenes and there are at least two more um, that I think will stick in people's minds, but actually for me one of the best bits about the film is the atmosphere of the non-action scenes um, and in particular again and I think for me it's another one of those I hate to use the word iconic so I'm not going to use it but it's another one of those things that tends to get screenshotted and, and used quite a bit. Um, the fact that they make their little base in a little Victorian garret off of Liverpool Street Station, and it very clearly is Liverpool Street Station because that's where they shot it. Yeah. Um, there's that lovely scene of Cruz when he walks in the rain across the road to the little arcade entrance, which is still there now, although it probably won't last much longer. And it, I think it's a really, it's a very European film, which is yeah. another thing that what De Palma was quite keen on. Um, you know, this whole idea of mixing. American ideas, um, Central European ideas, that sort of thing. And I think one of the interesting things about the mission, the first Mission Impossible film is that most people remember it for the action, and rightly so, but actually there's a huge amount of very European atmosphere in it, and that's something you don't often get with American-directed films, um, mm. and it, you tend to notice it when it happens. Yeah. Those phone booths are not there anymore, though, at Liverpool Street Station now. (laughs) (laughs) They're not there anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. So, Uh, Keith, uh, um, getting into spoilers here, but I have to ask you, as a fan of the TV show, what did you think about making Jim Phelps the villain? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is a point. Um, and I knew we'd get to that. Uh, I mean, basically, I was, I'll be honest, I was really excited about this film um, because, uh, you know, Tom Cruise had done some, you know, good work up to that point. Um, this was obviously the first film he produced as well. And uh, he was clearly, 
you know, I, he obviously grew up in the generation where, you know, this was this was screening when he was a kid. So, um, uh, you know, he was obviously a big fan of the the, 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 the TV show and uh, wanted to make this extension of it. Um, he was very smart to to hire a director like uh, De Palma to do this. Uh, obviously, we've had our podcasts talking specifically about De Palma, but, you know, um, he is a very stylish director. And, uh, you know, I, fr from a continuity point of view, I, initially I was upset that Peter Graves wasn't coming back to reprise the role because he was still alive at the time. And uh, obviously they recast him with with John Voight. And, um, you know, I'd heard that apparently the role was offered to him and he declined on it. Right. So obviously when I saw the film and, you know, was loving this film all the way through and then you get to two thirds of the way of the way through and there's this kind of reveal. Um, yeah, I could, I could see why the man that had basically played this role through some sort of 10 seasons of, of, of mission impossible and had been playing it for, you know, 20 years by that point, um, was a little upset that his character that was essentially the lead, you know, um, all American flag waving leader of the IMF, um, turned out to be a traitor <laughs> and, and turned out to be a traitor for, you know, a fairly weak motivation that, that obviously the Cold War was now over and the president didn't have to ask his permission anymore. And suddenly he realized he had a, a you know, a failed marriage and 80 grand a year or whatever it was. And this, you know, was the thing that made him sort of decide to commit treason and kill his team. Um, yeah. So even though I loved the film, I did kind of have a problem with the whole Jim Phelps thing as a fan of the original series. So, yes, um, it's my long winded answer to that. I think it's interesting because, of course, it, even then in the 90s, I mean, that was per, post the first Gulf War. Um, you can guess if you can say if you wanted to stretch a point a little bit, you could say that that was when you know, Americans started to think about the lack of certainties post-Cold War um, and things like that. So it kind of fits with that. But also, of course, it fits quite well with De Palma um, and his films, where very often um, people turn out to be something that you thought they weren't or vice versa. Um, so I suppose inevitably it's the sort of thing that happens when you bring a director like that to a franchise like that. Um, and, you know, one of your main decisions is, do you honour it totally or do you take a few left turns occasionally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you lose the, if you lose the connection of Jim Phelps to the TV show, um, I mean, you know, this is essentially a passing of the gauntlet film anyway. So, uh, you know, they, they used Phelps as the connection to the source material that, that, um, uh, Bruce Geller had, had created. And, uh, you, you, you know, they, Obviously, it was then going to be Ethan Ethan Hunt as the uh, you, you know the new leader and the central character and all of this sort of thing. So it is kind of almost like Mission Impossible: The Third Generation, uh, if you count the eighty show as well. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I really enjoyed the film, but I did I was kind of 
I had a bit of a problem with with them making. I didn't have a problem with John Voigt playing him instead of Peter Graves, but I did have a problem with with him sort of turning out to be the bad guy. But um, but but you know, I didn't see that coming. So the whole the whole reveal thing and everything worked in in true De Palma fashion, and in and and it was a real misdirect. And uh, you, you know, they they did so many things right in the film that. I can sort of forgive that from a story point of view. Um, you know, the film is a great bit of entertainment and, uh, you know, prob- and, 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 you know, it's a pretty close homage to the, uh, uh, you know, obviously on a much more international and, and bigger action scale, but it is, is a fairly good homage to the, uh, the TV show on what, which it was based. Yeah. If, I would say this was probably the closest to the TV show out of all the films. Interesting what you said, um, Keith, about not seeing things coming. I was wondering what you both thought, again, particularly as fans of the original, and given what Simon just said, um, around perhaps the the two other action sequences, one which is relatively small but still pretty good, uh, and obviously the climax. So if you think about the fish tank scene uh, Mm. in the restaurant, I, as the outsider, would say that was obviously something that was a little bit closer in scale and kind of feel to um, to the original. Whereas, of course, when you get to the climax in the Channel Tunnel, you have something that is very much not. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a tad ridiculous, isn't it? To be fair. <laughs> You say that, but I think for me, you know, the very first question was, did we see it on um, the big screen? And I did. Mm. And I remember very clearly that seeing that climax for the first time was really stunning. It really was breathtaking because, yes, part of me must have realised that it was utterly ludicrous because (laughs) the Channel Tunnel was open by then. It had been open for three years, but it looks absolutely nothing like the Channel Tunnel in Mission Impossible in any way um, before you even get into flying helicopters through it. So clearly it's ludicrous (laughs) in any, you know, reasonable sense. But it really did grab me at the time because it had such kind of chutzpah to it. It was so audacious and you just kind of run with it. And that famous end scene where the sort of chopped up blade stops just pointed to his neck, you know, it is a bloody good scene and it works really well even now. Yeah. Even, even though you get the, uh, the, the train driver. I was going to not mention that. You spoiled it. <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, yes, it, it is a lot of fun. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's been the thing. They, they've obviously tried to outdo, you know, these sort of scenes with 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 each installment. And um, and, and, and they've gradually got more realistic in terms of the fact that they're, they're more or less done for real nowadays. Whereas obviously, um, you, you, you know, that uh, w- w- was was clearly very fabricated and (laughs) and and it does it does sort of show although it works really well as you know the tension and everything in it works really well you know Mm. it is preposterous though (laughs) i have to say you can't you can't have a good spy stroke action stroke caper movie without a fight on a train Um, this is true and you do get a really good fight on a train. Um, literally again, on a train. Yeah, yeah because, and that was, that was relatively unusual at the time in the sense that conceptually it's no different to all the James Bond film chase, train chases or even World War II set film chases. 
Um, there are bits that are shot on a real train, on a real track, and there are bits that are shot in a studio. The difference was that you started to, you were at the dawn of the digital age, so the what would have been back projection in the old days and would have been wholly unconvincing was far more convincing now. Um, and, you know, you get your star, you put the fan on them, and you have a digital backdrop, and you can do it a lot more convincingly. And if you remember, there's the, the beginning of that whole kind of final act is a single slow zoom shot that looks like a helicopter shot and comes all the way into the train speeding across the bridge and ends up with Vanessa Redgrave right in the middle of the picture. Um, yeah. It's a really, really good shot. Um, and I think it's interesting reviewing it now, and I think it's good that we've given it a bit of time because, yes, it kicked off the series, but also there's an awful lot in it, actually. You know, it satisfies the action fans. Um from what Simon was saying, pretty good in terms of, you know, getting close to the the, the spirit of the original. Um, but it also brings something new and something, you know, 1990s, if there is such a thing that, you know, as you were saying, kind of paving the way to what was going to come later. Yeah. And I just yeah. want to say also the fact that the the fight on top of the train actually felt like, you know, a, what a fight on the top of a train would be like because they, they couldn't run. They literally just let go and fly because the train was going so fast. Absolutely. Because that's that always been the one thing about, uh, you know, fights on trains is that they're usually like uh, steam engines or sort of older trains so that you can walk and, you know, it, you, you don't have to worry about, you know, just the, the fact that inertia would just sweep you off your feet. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um mm. Actually, as a side point, I think you could do an entire podcast about fights on the train. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, there you go. Yeah. It'd, be, it'd be so cool because <laughs> you've got stuff like the ones we talked about. You've got, you know, the whole Bond films that would take up probably half of the podcast. Yeah. Um, but you've got all kinds of stuff. You've got the Cassandra Crossing and all kinds of things. But anyway. Silver Streak. <laughs> yeah, well, Silver Streak, yeah. That was spooky. I, was, I think you were reading my mind there. I was actually thinking about that as well. <laughs> We should move on to the future and the turn of the millennium and get on to <laughs> MI2. Yes, yeah, right. MI2 yeah. by Mr. Wu. Yes. Yes, exactly. We went, well, okay, here's, here's something that I think Tom Cruise has done, which is, which is really smart. I mean, I, I'll start by saying I really like Tom Cruise. Uh, I know sometimes he gets some bad press by some people, but for what he does as an actor and a film producer and, and a guy who's passionate about his work, um, I really don't think you can fault him because, you, you know, he thinks of his audience. He, he bothers with the fans when whenever there's a premiere or whatever. He's always got the audience in mind when he makes something. And, you, you know, he's got, you know, apart from this franchise, you know, He's now produced over over 20 films, um, you know, most of which have been hugely successful. Um, but the one thing he doesn't do, which I'm quite surprised because when you think about it, he spent the last 30 plus years on a film on film sets and, and has a, a lot of experience. Um, but he seems to know where his place is as a sort of um leading man actor who does a lot of his own stunts which we'll come on to but also as a producer that gets involved in all the aspects of the production but chooses not to actually direct it instead he's very smart because i think the choices he makes of his directors um 
going for directors that have a, a very unique style and vision, um, you know, to make each film within the franchise feel very different. And uh, it, it's weird because he's almost sort of taken on like, like we talk a lot about television. Um, he almost has kind of a showrunner role, but in movies, um, if you like. And, uh, but, but, you know, my, my hat, I mean, you know, he's got the best job in the world, I think. I really do. And you can see that he loves it and you can see that he puts, you know, 100% into everything that he does and is so involved and, and works on it. So, you know, Mr. Cruz, we do salute you and we do thank you for these films because, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think he's really smart with what he, what he does. And uh, obviously he made a big sort of gambling choice here to, to make his first ever sequel at the time. Um, very, very different to the first film. Would you say that's a fair comment? <laughs> I think it is. And I think, I think your point about the directorial choices is an interesting one because again, for me, and obviously we haven't seen the sixth one yet, we should say, um, for me, the, the differences in the directors are far more distinct in those first three films than they are in the other, the, the following three. And again, that's not a criticism. Um, I think it was an, certainly an interesting choice in terms of John Boo. I mean, I, at the time, this was three years after Face Off, which I enjoyed. <laughs> but again, it's quite another interesting example of a film that is utterly nonsensical, of course, in, in, any, reasonable, in any reasonable view, but is incredibly enjoyable. Although, interestingly also, it's another one that's slightly died into the background now. You don't, it doesn't get an awful lot of play, and it's not, it's not really referred to that much, which is kind of interesting. Um, and actually, it's particularly interesting in the light of John Woo going on to direct a Mission Impossible film about disguises and face changing. So that's kind of interesting in itself. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think for me, far more strongly in my memory than Mission Impossible 2, because strange to say, I, I almost certainly saw it in the pictures, but I have very, very vague memories of it. And again, curiously, one that doesn't seem to get shown that much on that TV thing, which for me is still a useful tool to catch up on things. But just getting back to the point, Facebook, uh, Facebook, Face Off was, was definitely one that I saw and enjoyed. But I also enjoyed um, John Woo's Hard Boiled, which was, I think, his first, not a Hollywood film as such, but it was the first one that really got seen in the West. And that also was about, shall we say, differing identities and disguising identities. And I can see where the kind of logic came into it. I'm personally, I'm not sure that it was necessarily a good fit to the franchise, despite the fact that I just said I don't really remember much of it. But I think that actually speaks quite a lot, actually, as to my view on whether it worked or not. Now, I I know this film quite well because I was working in a cinema at the time. Ah, <laughs> because this was the, the summer of bad films. <laughs> <laughs> this was the summer where we got... Um, the Patriot and Thomas the Tank Engine and I'm not sure you're entirely comparing like with like this <laughs> no no but that was that was the summer I see the way you're that, going that was the summer I mean it started off really well we got Gladiator great great film to start off the summer and it just went downhill I mean it was the year we got the first X-Men film which to me I didn't really enjoy 
Oh, and I anyway, was, that's and, a whole and, other podcast. And <laughs> sort of the end of summer season, we got Snatch, which was, you know, at the time I I, I hated because I loved um, uh, a lock, stock and two smoking barrels because that came out of another bad summer. And it was like it was such a, a, a breath of fresh air amongst Godzilla and those kind of films, you know, so lost you in space. So for you, did 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 Mr. Woo woo you then? No, um, it was a shame, really, because um, at the time I was a big John Woo fan. I loved his Hong Kong stuff. Um, the thing that brought his him to attention in the West was actually The Killer, right? And yeah. uh, A Better Tomorrow. Hard Boiled was his last Hong Kong film before moving over to the States. Now, the States never really knew what to do with him. Um, Hard Target was a lot of fun. And uh, Face Off was probably the closest thing he did over in the States that was close to his uh, Hong Kong work. But then uh, Mission Impossible 2 was kind of like the the sort of down point for him. He was never He, he never really made a good film after Face Off. Um, I always felt that was too much interference or that the films that he was getting were not, uh, you know, a fit, really. Now, Mission Impossible 2, I think, kind of starts off with a fuck you with the mask stuff because it's the bad guy pretending to be Ethan Hunt. And I know they use it a couple of times within the film, but it's... I always felt like it was a bit of a, you know, oh fuck the the mask stuff. Let's um, this is this is more about the action and the uh, ballet, the uh, you know the whole stuff with the motorbikes and the nice and yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think for me that's interesting because I, as I said earlier, I think uh, and it is quite interesting when you see these films first time round because mm-hmm. you're your appreciation and your perception of them, you know, is affected by when you see it then and then you look back on it later. So it's different from when you come to them in, in one go if you had to watch something new, you know, all, all rushed together. And I think for me that's probably probably why, whether I kind of got or had a link to the original MI series or not, um, the fir- that first film did set the tone, notwithstanding that scene in the lift at the beginning, as we discussed, mm. um, you know, to a pretty much, yes, action certainly, but not bang-bang type gunfight action. Yeah. And I think for me, it's really interesting how it absolutely changes. And actually, looking back on it now, it's clear that it actually changes with Mission Impossible 2 because I think you're right, Simon. I think, funnily enough, the note that I've scribbled to myself here is, despite quite liking all that two-gun business in um, the Hong Kong films, yeah. particularly hard-boiled, um, it actually looks a bit when you when you, you you match it to the bike clash and all of that and the slow mo. It looks a bit parodic, really, for Mission Impossible. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it is kind of comical. I mean that the whole sort of dove motif that John Woo loves doing in his films in this just seemed to just be come at a very comical part. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, somebody asked me the other day. I, I've revisited all the. Um, Mission Impossible films in the last couple of weeks as a lead up to uh, to seeing um, uh, you know Fallout yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. So, um, but 
somebody asked me about Mission Impossible 2 and said, you know, do you think Mission Impossible 2 is, is a good movie or a shit movie or, or what do you think? And I, my answer to them was this. I, I, I think Mission Impossible 2 is not a good Mission Impossible movie. However, it is a really good John Woo action movie no. starring Tom Cruise. No, yeah, I mean, no, no. There's not even a, a very good John Woo film. I can, see, I, I could, I disagree. I, 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 I can. Is, yeah. I mean, the, the Hong Kong stuff is amazing because um, it works on so many different levels. It's, I mean, you get the spectacle of the action and the sort of the the ballet of the gunplay, but you also you get the emotional side as well. You're dealing with uh, an undercover cop and you know uh, a sort of dirty Harry type cop trying to sort of you know stay out of each other's way in some sense and they both have uh you know guilt on their side because in the very opening scene of hard-boiled you know um tequila our, our main guy you know he kills another cop he kills an undercover cop and he has to live with that uh you know in mission impossible 2 you get um you know this uh, uh disease this uh, genetically designed disease called the chimera and you know they this professor f- friend of tom cruise of ethan hunts is trying to uh you know escape with it and um you know gets killed off by the you know bad uh imf agent um and then you know it's just it, 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 I don't know if it, it, it yeah. feels more like a Bond film than anything. Well, I mean, you've th- got the th- whole this, scene this in the, the race yeah, this was, course and this stuff. This is the point. I, exactly. I mean, this is the point I was trying to come to. Oh, is, okay. is base, basically, I told them that I didn't think it was necessarily a good Mission Impossible film because mm. it is probably the most removed from the source material of any of them. You know, anything they've done what they did before and anything they've done since. And it's, it's interesting what Chris said about the, you know, the, the whole gunplay thing, because in, in the first film, other than Ethan um, grabbing the gun, when uh, Claire comes back to the, the safe house and sort of jumping around the room, pointing the gun at her saying, who are you, who are you? And all this sort of thing. Right. Mm. Um, he, he doesn't use a gun at all in that film. Wherein, whereas in this film, he fires off, so many rounds of ammunition it's it's nobody's business you know like you said with all the all the woo tropes of jumping through the air in slow motion with twin guns with a ball of fire and doves flying around you know and all that stuff you know what else is funny is the fact that uh in the film they actually point out that ethan hunt doesn't like killing people well when they 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 talk about the raid on the um the the main headquarters where the the lab where they have this chimera and they also, you know, do Gray Scott's characters go, well, he's going to come in through the top because that's going to, he's not going to kill anybody. You know, he'll want to come in and, you know, as if nobody knew he was there. And then just the fact that after that, you know, he just, it's he like kills he's, he kills everyone, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is, it is, it is a totally preposterous uh, film in terms of, um, you, you know, uh, what they, what they've done is they've essentially, they've got, as the MacGuffin, they've got this, you know, chemical, um, chemical uh, warfare threat thing going on. And then they essentially, they take the plot of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, 
okay, and <laughs> yes. whack it with and whack it in with a with a John Woo action <laughs> or action tropes. And and you were saying about the James Bond thing. I mean, I, I think this is where where this first happened. Is if you ask me, what's happened with the Mission Impossible franchise is it's become Paramount's. Um, answer to the bond franchise so obviously mm. sony's got the bond films and universal have got the uh, jason bourne films and whatever and this 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 has sort of become you know paramount's answer t- to bond because and the other the other thing that that's you say about him you know saying that he doesn't kill people and then killing loads of people my problem with this if i had one really was the fact that ethan hunt in this film is a completely different character to what he was in the first film and the following films. This yes. one is, you know, it's not just, yes, he, he's played and voiced by Tom Cruise, obviously, but, but, and he, but apart from growing his hair out, that's not where the, that's not where the changes end. I mean, everything <laughs> from his motivations to uh, his wardrobe to absolutely everything is, is much more of a, a Lothario Bond type act, you know, to Bond type character here. And I mean, the whole, the whole thing with the masks, you know, that, that do link it to the franchise is in the first film, it was very set up at the beginning, you, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the homage they yeah. did to the series about the face mask. And then it pays off at the end yeah. with a reveal. They earned it right in this one. It's ridiculous because we're supposed to believe that he went onto that island with yes. a backpack full of masks <laughs> and wigs of not only himself, but all of the bad guys that you might encounter. And I mean, it is, it's ridiculous, you know. We should leave that perhaps on the big cliff in the desert that it starts on um, and move on. But I think it, it's interesting to note, and, and I, will, I will say these without further comment, um, the screenwriter of this delightful film that we're enjoying uh, was no less than Robert Town, who yeah. had actually co-written the first film with David Kep, which actually is interesting because Kep was the kind of go-to screenwriter in that period. Um, he was, also, yeah. All kinds of stuff. Robert Town needs no introduction or bigging up from me or anyone else. Um, and it's interesting because I have to say the the one thing we haven't talked about, and I'm not suggesting we go back, is the dialogue or any of that in in that first film, um, and certainly not in the second one. So that's kind of interesting in itself. Hmm. Um, but I think the thing I did want to end on, and I am reading this from Wikipedia, so you can read into that what you like, but it, it summarises the critical response to Mission Impossible 2 as mixed um, and says that, such criticism as there was tended to centre on the plot, the dialogue, the lack of resemblance to the source material and the overall lack of substance. So I think that's quite a useful summary. Um, I'm not saying we necessarily entirely agree with it, but it <laughs> seems like it might be a good place to move on to the third one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ron Moore and Brannon Bragger were also involved in the story part of this. Obviously, they, their background being Star Trek, yet another Star Trek connection. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, I, I do think, though, for all it, I mean, it's got some great action scenes. Anthony Hopkins, who unfortunately doesn't appear again, um, but he does have, I would say, probably the the best line of the franchise. And that's where Tom Cruise says he goes, um, 
you know, get, get, getting her out, getting her in this situation and getting her out is going to be difficult. And he said, difficult? And he goes, yes, very. And he goes, well, he says, Mr. Hunt, this is mission impossible, not mission difficult. So difficult should be a walk in the park. And I have to say, <laughs> cheesy as that is, it did make me laugh <laughs> that they got the name check in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a shame they didn't keep on uh, keep Anthony Hopkins on these films because uh, I think he he played a very good boss. But uh, I imagine that the cost of uh, Anthony Hopkins is quite high. Indeed. Indeed. And and obviously, you know, Tandy Newton, um, you know, I watched this and I, I, I'd forgotten how, you know, beautiful she was. Well, she still is. But in this film, you know, I was like, oh, my Lord, uh, you know, um, but she, she, you know, it, it, it did good, good for her sort of Hollywood career, um, you know, and she's still going strong today. I'm pleased to say, seeing her in things like Westworld with with Anthony Hopkins. So, yes, there you go. Again, it's all connected. If only <laughs> we were part of it. <laughs> Talking of good careers, then that's a good introduction to Mission Impossible Three, 2006. Yeah. Um, yeah. JJ Abrams, uh, who yeah. had had a very good career for a few years before that. Uh, you in mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which, which you know is interesting given the the origin of the of the entire concept. Um, but you hinted at that with the reference to Alias earlier, and that was obviously a good good call there. Um, Lost was part way through its immensely long run. Um, I, I departed company from it by then, but nevertheless, it was still it was still going on. Um, and I think for me, this is interesting because although, as we discussed at the beginning, absolutely remember the first MI film. For me, the one that really sticks in my mind, strangely enough, more even than the most recent one, is Mission Impossible 3. Mm. And that may be because, I mean, I think I probably would have seen it anyway, just because I like action films. Um, I was obviously well aware of Abrams' work, because as I say, I used to watch Lost and used to watch Alias. Um, and I probably was suckered in by some of the trailers as well. Um, but for me, I thought this was actually, and it's interesting what um, you said, Keith, earlier about how you felt that the crew's character was very different, atypically different in number two and kind of went back to normal in three. I think in terms of the film and the whole MI concept, at least as far as I understood it, you know, not coming to it from the, the TV, uh, what I liked about three was that it felt really, really different and it felt much harder edged to me. Again, notwithstanding that opening scene of the first film, which was 10 years old by that point. Um, if you think about the pre credit sequence of MI3 um, with what's basically a psychological torture scene um, with Tom Cruise's character as the victim, his girlfriend as the other victim, um, and a really good villain um, who you really feel is villainous. Uh, and that's before you get the Lalo Schifrin theme music. Um, so, you know, for me, it felt really different from the start and it continued that theme as it went on. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Cruz went to uh, Abrams because obviously Cruz is a fan of Alias as well. Um, and, you know, that's the thing. Cruz... Cruz, I think, as I said earlier, he is such a movie and TV fan, fanboy, as well as actually being the guy who's in and doing all this stuff. You know, he, he clearly watches a lot. And um, that opening, uh, that sort of pre-credit sequence, if you like, 
uh, where they sort of pick up two thirds of the way through the film. And then obviously afterwards sort of go back, you know, several weeks late earlier or whatever it is. Um, that was a trope that they used to use in Alias all the time. I mean, so many Alias episodes started off like that, right in the sort of heart of, you know, Sydney getting tortured or something and uh, or about to die. And then, you know, you have your little ali- Alias credit um, sting and then it comes back to, uh, you, you know, two days earlier or something. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we get to that point by the third act of, of, of the uh of the story and um you, you know he essentially did did that here and uh obviously you know these these directors that that tom hires uh they always bring their kind of team with them their creative team so of course you've got uh kurtzman and archie as the uh as the writers on this with jj uh you've got michael chikimo coming in to do the music um he not only does Lalo Schifrin's uh, opening theme, but he also does some of the mu- other themes that were used in the TV series as well. He redoes those, which I thought was great. And, um, you know, he brings a lot of his actors that he's worked with and his, you know, production designers and all that sort of stuff on board. But from a story perspective, this is actually kind of a retread of the two films that came before. Because when you think about it, this one involves one of Tom's or one of Ethan's friends in the IMF turning out to be a traitor, a la Jim Phelps in the first film. And it, the MacGuffin in it is a, uh, you know, a, a, a chemical weapon device that they have to steal and give to the bad guy. Yeah. Which, again, is kind of what happened in the other films. So even though it's a completely different spin on it all, it does have some sort of familiar tropes in terms of the, uh, the plotting of this. For me, this is my favorite mission impossible film. And Ooh, we're supposed to wait to the end for that. Yeah. Well, okay. it. Spoilers. <laughs> but the, the reason why is because there's real stakes in this. I mean, in the second one, they try to do stakes halfway through where, uh, Fandy Newton's character injects herself with the um, with the disease, and uh, so then Ethan Hunt has to you know find a cure. But in this one, the the stakes are really high, and you can feel them. And that is because you you have a hell of a bad guy with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, absolutely. You know he he plays a, a an evil bastard. I mean a, a right proper. You, you don't want to cross this guy so when they lose him on the bridge your your heart just sinks because you know this is where this is leading as we just talked about the the opening sequence and the fact that spoiler you know you see the death of his fiance you know you see the person he loves dying in front of him of course that turns out to be a twist but at that point, you're like, fucking hell. <laughs> you're like, the gloves yeah. are off, really. It's a really weird experience to see that opening sequence the first time and then sit through the Mission Impossible song. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're, you're, right. like you're like, a bit, you're like, shit. And it's like, dun, dun, dun. And you're like, this is not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think you're right, Simon, because for me, 
again, mm. I, I, you know, I have a really strong memory of this and it was, you know, it's only 10 years ago, but, and, and like I keep saying, I, I come at this from a slightly different angle. And I think that's why this discussion has been so interesting because much as I do like character and plot for me, my response to the MI films, particularly the later ones has mostly been around the action sequences because that is one of the things I like and particularly the types of action sequences that they've now started to do. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's kind of how I, I come to it. But I completely agree with you because, again, that is one of my, apart from the action scenes, and I have to say that that bridge attack scene is absolutely fantastic. I've always been a really big fan. This is very niche and very nerdy, but I've always been, because I'm quite into military stuff and military history and technology, <laughs> as, as certain other guests of this podcast know, um, I've always really liked it when they, they do that kind of, not just, you know, a car chase, but you have to get a Harrier jump jet or you have to get a, a, a helicopter or something like that. Mm. Um, so that I remember, again, really clearly watching that that scene on the bridge where there's just a nice chat in the car, very standard sort of shot. And suddenly the car behind gets blown up. Uh, and it's still one of the best action sequences that I've seen in recent years. Uh, it was one of the first, possibly even the first films that I'm aware of. Um, to feature a drone um, that he admittedly he fends it off rather improbably with a assault rifle, but never mind. Um, you know that's now become a bit of a trope in a lot of films because again it's very much a link to real world, um, and we kind of touched on that earlier. But getting back to that opening sequence, I, I completely agree. I think it was you're right. There was a slight jar there where it jumps into the kind of the MI idea, but I think that's where that issue of the stakes come from because and it would be interesting to see it now we've been talking about it but my memory of it is that it's very 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 simply shot it's just basically you know three facial close-ups that just keep hooking backwards and forwards and say what you like about Tom Cruise as an actor um, I think that's one of the best acting sequences that he's done certainly in the MI franchise I and, agree and I think you're right you, you really do get that there is really bloody serious stakes here and you actually believe it whereas most of these you know particularly in a bond film i was going to say even in a bond film but actually let's be fair particularly in a bond film um certainly the ones at that period pre-casino royale you never really get any sense of dread or or mm. you know real stakes there yeah. um but you definitely do in that and i and i thought for me that was a real difference in in the franchise yeah i mean yeah. the whole bridge sequence works because the end of the day, you just don't want Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to escape. And so you're there with uh, Ethan Hunt trying to, to stop him. And, you know, that that uh, explosion that knocks him into the car, mm. I mean, that looked properly nasty. I mean, yeah. you know, it, I mean, I'm sure they did it very safely. And if that had happened in real life, he'd probably be paralysed from the waist down. But... <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it did look like he actually hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I I agree with you both. I mean, you, you know, th this film, thoroughly enjoyable, really well done. I mean, I have to say, what a, what a loss to the absolute planet that uh, we haven't got Philip Seymour Hoffman as a, an actor anymore because, you, you know, he is he is probably by far the strongest antagonist that we've had so far in the franchise i think and um, the other thing that i loved about what this film did because i do think 
in some respects, it did a little bit of course correcting. And um, I agreed with your point earlier, um, Chris, about how the first three movies really, really felt very different to one another because they, they were kind of all sort of individual stories done in an individual auteurs or, you know, director's style where, you know, what this one sets up and carries on in the remaining films is kind of a, um, you know, more serialized fashion moving forward. So we've got plot points that start to sort of, and characters that sort of start to go through the other movies, as well as just Ethan Hunt and, and Luther character. Um, but one of the things they did really well, I think, in this film as well, which they didn't do at all well in the second one, was they actually gave some explanation as to how the whole masks and the voice chips and all that sort of thing work. And I thought JJ did that in a really clever way by having that very sort of tense scene where, uh, you know, Hunt goes to, uh, you know, replace Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, but they haven't quite got the voice part figured out yet. And he has to sort of yeah, yeah. Tell, tell the, uh, tell the security guard to hold on a second and whatever. And I thought that's, that's so JJ to sort of, you know, take what doesn't make sense and try and sort of re retrofit it. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he did that great. And also, of course, this is the only film which again is a real IMF trope from the original um, series that they've never really got right in the films is, you know, in the original series, you'd have the recording that would self-destruct on whatever it was. And then you'd have what they call the dossier scene, right? Which is obviously it was a very analog time when this was done compared to today, but he would essentially go through that dossier and pick his team. And like I already said, the cool thing with the way BBC used to transmit it was it was a different team each week, you know, but uh, he would pick his team. Whereas in a lot of the movies, the team already gets picked for Hunt before he begins, which is why we have traitors and stuff in there. But at least in this one, he picks his team again. So again, I felt that this one was a much, much better homage to the original TV series than the than the two previous movies in many respects, you know? Yeah. I, I like to give a shout out for a couple of things which I can leave. They're, they're very different, but they, they occur together so I can cover both. Um, we talked about the action sequences. Uh, I think we should mention the early action sequence, which is a kind of combination of shootout in the warehouse and that amazing helicopter chase through a wind farm which yes. is a really, really good example of an entirely original chase. Yes, we've seen aerial chases before, um, but a bit like car chases, they're actually quite hard to do either convincingly or in an original way. Um, and again, I remember thinking that was genuinely unusual. I mean, it was great to do it at night. It was good to do it, um, you know, as I say, in the concept of flying two helicopters through a wind farm. Again, as, as utterly impossible and incredible as the channel tunnel sequence in the first film, but it works brilliantly in the film. Yeah. And, and, and what is so incredible to add to that, Chris also, and this is where, you know, JJ and his team are so good is the fact that you've got this countdown to this thing that's going to explode in her head happening at the same time. You know, that's amazing. And, and that leads perfectly to the final point that I was going to make, which is, I think we need to give a shout out to Kerry Russell. Um, because, 
because I remember if if having Philip Seymour Hoffman in there, you know, really umps up the bad guy, having her there as admittedly a character who, spoiler alert, doesn't make it that far into the film, um, really, really helps because, again, my memory very strongly of seeing her in that helicopter, knowing she's going to die and pleading for him to save her and it doesn't work, it, it really got me because she's a bloody good actress and it, it really worked well in, a, in what is basically, you know, a relatively minor role in, in that sense. So I, I just wanted to mention that because I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. With JJ being loyal to his, uh, his, his past collaborators again, which, uh, which that guy always is, um, which I applaud him for. And, uh, you, you know, my one criticism, if there was any, is, is that Maggie Q was probably a bit underused in this, really. But but, hey, she got she got the Nikita series pretty much off the back of this. So I guess it did something mm. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, I just want to say one thing. I think um, out of all the sort of people who have had to try and play uh Tom Cruise in disguise, even Hunt in disguise. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman does it the most convincingly. I agree because you you do believe that is actually Ethan Hunt in disguise. You don't. That has always sort of been the slight conceit in the whole uh, Mission Impossible TV series and films is that you believe that the person who's been impersonated is actually that person. But to actually have an actor who's pretending to be their character, but being played by somebody else, um, is is a long stretch. And I think Philip Seymour Hoffman does it really well. You do believe that it's you know Tom Cruise is hiding underneath the Philip Seymour Hoffman mask there. <laughs> I agree. I think that's a really nice point. Um, yeah. I agree. And, and just just as a minor factoid, um, I met Philip Seymour Hoffman's brother once, um, very 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 briefly at the BFI. Um, but yeah, no, it's good that you mentioned that. I think that that's important. Yeah, well, they certainly they certainly did that a lot more successfully than uh, than than in the second film with yeah. the whole uh, you know, um, to Gray Scott's character posing as as, as Tom. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's that is yeah. the thing because everybody's pretending to be Ethan Hunt in that film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even when they don't want to be, uh, I am pretending to be me. So I am going to say that interestingly, and I think Keith, you made a really interesting point there about a kind of one one of the divisions between, as you can see it, between one, two, and three, and four and five. And I think we can fairly safely intuit six as well. Um, uh, and I think I think that's right. And, you know, I think there are other sort of differences as well in terms of the way it goes forward. We've talked about the directors. We've talked about your, your point about the move from the sort of auteur style to a kind of serialised approach. Um, and, and I think it's one of the things for me that slightly has taken a slight edge away from the latter films is that in each of them so far... I can't speak for the last one, the, the new one, but certainly the previous two, we're into the kind of going rogue with no backup um, mm. line, which, you know, <laughs> is interesting. And we'll talk about that now in terms of Ghost Protocol from 2011. But it's interesting that that's, that is, a, I think, a definite kind of shift um, for good or bad um, in the series. And I think for me, I have to say it was for bad because... I saw this when it came out again, um, 
I saw it on an IMAX screen, and this has elements shot in proper IMAX, 15 per 70 mil IMAX. Um, I think it was perhaps slightly unfortunate that, the, from memory, the trailer for the film, well, it wasn't really, I suppose it was a trailer, it was a clip, um, was from the Dark Knight film, the one with which was also shot in IMAX with the um, two planes catching Dark the Dark Knight Rises, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Which was absolutely mind-blowing and it blew anything in Mission Impossible off of the screen, unfortunately. Which it, it was it was really unfortunate. Um, and I think it, it, it was interesting because I was specifically I probably would have seen Ghost Protocol anyway, but I definitely was interested because it did have these IMAX sequences and I thought, hmm, okay, that you know, that's definitely worth seeing. Um, but despite that, for me, and I'll I'll jump in and sort of start at a low point. Um, it really didn't work for me. And I think one of the reasons was, strangely enough, um, this idea, as the poster had it, of no plan, no backup, no choice. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I, I was never particularly convinced. And I, I think it doesn't help when when you say we've got no plan and no backup and all that, and then suddenly you have a brilliant secret hideaway full of face-changing equipment and guns and all the other kind of stuff. You need to actually have a backup and a plan. So... <laughs> Well, I just I just want to say say though, Chris, um, the very first film was uh, Ethan Hunt going rogue. I think no, yeah, no, that's more, true, more more rogue because he didn't have that kind of backup, did he? He didn't have the devices and stuff. He had to. It was more about his wits than. No, I think that's a fair point actually, and, and you're, no, you're right to point that out. And I, but again, it may be that because of the fact that well, okay, maybe not the second one, but the first two one and three are pretty strong and they've got their strengths in other ways and it, yeah. you know, it takes it into a different direction. I think it's interesting. I must admit, I'll be completely honest, I hadn't realised that. I'd forgotten that. And yet, again, I definitely remember that, and maybe it's because one did it so well because it was a more, partly because of the way it was made and the time it was made, but it was definitely a more stripped back film than something like three and certainly four. Mm. Um, you know, when you're, when you're hanging off of, the side of the world's tallest building for real. I think you can say that you really are going to another level. Um, yes, I think what what happens here is that with uh, this one onwards, it's it becomes more about spectacle. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely right. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say we could we could talk about both films together because they are very similar. I mean, the fact that you've got him hanging off the tallest building, and then in the next one. Uh, you've got him hanging off the the side of a, a plane for real. I was going to say, yeah, both yeah. done for 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 you know, and it it, it does it. Uh, these films do kind of make it feel more like a stunt reel for Tom Cruise. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this this is this is one of the things that's uh, that I do like about this in terms of with, with the MI films and with the with the Bond films. You know, we 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 have kind of you know, real action and real stunts and sort of death defying stuff done for real, but obviously enhanced with, with some, some CG imagery to, you know, remove cables, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, another big action franchise that I love too is the um, fast and furious ones, but you know, that's becoming, (laughs) that's becoming more and more of a, you know, visual effects fest, um, you, you know to, to to show the action even though the, i know they do a lot of stuff as well but um but but your your thing about the whole going rogue and whatever i mean <laughs> this is one of the biggest differences i guess between the 
the TV series and the movies is in the TV series, the IMF um, division, you know, they would go in, they would do their mission and they would leave and they would have solved whatever it needed to be and move on. And, and y- y- you know, nobody was kind of the wiser, but, you know, they, they'd fix that. Uh, situation mm. and and yeah. were totally covert and all this whereas in the movies the 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 the, M, the M, i5 uh sorry the, the the imf team is is just uh you, you know absolutely full of traitors and people going rogue <laughs> i mean it's like a absolute awful if, if you look up under the yellow pages under sort of covert action force don't call the IMF because they're probably the worst choice you could actually make. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, if there's one difference between analog and digital, it's that, isn't it? You know? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the fact they blow up the Kremlin, I mean, they, you know, you know, they destroy this, uh, historical building, uh, for the whole world to see. I mean, I'm surprised, you know, that they haven't been closed down by now. It's like, well, everybody knows you're there now. It's not a big secret. I yeah. think it's really, it's really, really interesting that we've kind of come to this view independently. And it's, a, it, it's you know, we, we should say to the listeners that there was no collusion on, uh, involved in this show at all. <laughs> um, we didn't even talk about it beforehand, really. But I, I think it is interesting because I, I think Simon nails it there in terms of, you know, it's become spectacle over other elements shall we say yeah. although i think we should say that hidden behind the wind literally hidden behind the windows of the burj khalifa the tallest building in the world um is actually the core of a really neat scene where they do the the misleading in as to which hotel room the different parties are in which is actually really really clever and is absolutely in line with the tv franchise um and yeah. actually if, if you divorce that as a concept and did it, you know, 100 stories lower down with a bit less spectacle, it will be really good to actually see a more kind of stripped back riff on that because actually it's brilliant. It's really, really clever. But I think the problem is for me, um, you know, it's really hard to sort of admire that as a neat intellectual conceit with a bit of wit to it when your main star is having to clomp down the side of the building 100 stories up and avoid getting blown off. So, and it's really strange because having, and anyone who knows me and my interest in films knows that I absolutely love IMAX, proper IMAX, um, and would see almost anything in it. I remember being bitterly disappointed at those Burj Khalifa scenes. And Really? Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Again, nerdy interlude. Um, I think it's a <laughs> things. I think it doesn't help that that sequence that we talked about segues into a car chase and a running chase out of the building but it all takes place in a sandstorm so as i found with um christopher nolan's interstellar nolan a brilliant supporter of imax in the dark knight franchise completely throws it away in interstellar because the whole sodding film is set in space and it's in black and white and so whether you shoot it on IMAX or an eight millimeter camera doesn't make a lot of difference. <laughs> so I would suggest that if you've got an IMAX camera knocking around in a few thousand feet of film and you want to blow people away, don't hide everything you're shooting in a sandstorm because blown up to the size of an IMAX screen, that doesn't really help. Right, but sh- but surely the bit on the building looked good, didn't it? You see, you've 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 made me you've made me feel a little better actually. The reason I say this is I remember this was a Boxing Day film when this one came out. I mean, I know they're like. 
the one we're talking to, the, the one coming out tomorrow, you know, we're in the middle of the summer and all that at the moment. But I remember this, this particular year, I think it was 2011 when Ghost Protocol came out. Um, it was, uh, it was a Boxing Day film and I went to see it on Boxing Day, um, but I was at my parents, which are down on the South Coast. And uh, one of my big regrets was that I wasn't watching it on the IMAX screen because obviously I'd seen the Dark Knight film uh, on the IMAX screen and loved it and thought to myself, oh, I want to be seeing these sequences in full IMAX. I, but, other, other opinions are available, obviously, and, <laughs> and obviously we'll get Simon's take on it in a second. But I think for me, that was part of it. So partly it was perhaps just an unfortunate choice of is this a good match of format to what I'm actually showing? Um, and does it really show it in its, you know, in its best? The other thing is a slightly weird architectural thing. Um, the reason New York looks so cool is because it's full of skyscrapers. You can immediately judge visually and aesthetically which ones are taller, which ones are thinner. There is a context that's similar. Um, when you get the world's tallest building stuck in the middle of a desert, it doesn't actually matter that it's the world's tallest building. You can't tell whether the other few buildings around it are, you know, short, tall, whatever. Um, it's just a big, long steel needle sticking there. And the scene that you're alluding to, Keith, where he's literally hanging out of the building, and as we all know, he literally did that um, with appropriate support. Um, for me, it didn't work. And I remember this really clearly. There's a very explicit probably more than one actually down angle shot where they literally just craned the camera out the window and pointed it straight down but again the problem is there is no context around there the Burj Khalifa sits in a little artificial green tiny desert you know set of gardens in the middle of the desert so it's not like you're looking past him and seeing god that's a New York taxi going by you know half a mile below there's no context there's no scale it, it looks like a CGI image and that's the deep irony of the whole thing. And I remember, I haven't made this up for this podcast. I remember this very clearly when I watched it at the time. Um, it looked exactly like if you'd had hung him on a green screen and CGI'd the background in because there wasn't enough detail in the existing landscape to actually bring that out. If you, had, if you did that by hanging him off the top of the Freedom Tower, which is the new replacement for the World Trade Center, that would be a lot more impressive because you would immediately know you were hanging over New York. Dubai, Dubai and all of that isn't that well known to people. You know, we all have a mental image of what London looks like. And I'll talk about that when we talk about Rogue Nation. Mm. Um, and we all have a mental image of what New York looks like because we've all seen a million films set there. For me, that was why it really didn't work. You know, other people will have a different view and I'm sure it'd be really interesting to hear Simon's view. But that was my reaction to it. And that's why I was disappointed. I find that interesting. Simon? Well, I didn't watch this in IMAX. I just watched it uh, at a normal uh, cinema. Uh, so, um, I, I you know, I mean, I'm trying to rack my brain about it because the, the problem with this one and the next one, Rogue Nation, is that they kind of bleed into each other. Uh, and it's trying to sort of remember what happens in each one. I, I, you know, at the time I thought that sequence was kind of interesting, but it was well done and everything. I mean, you had the malfunctioning glove, you know, yeah. that was making the, the uh, ascent and descent, uh, you know, tricky. And we, you know, it was a call back to um, Ethan Hunt's rock climbing at the beginning of the second film. 
absolutely. Good point. Yeah, so you know, I I I remember enjoying the film when I saw it, but I when I went back to watch it again, I think it was up to once they leave Dubai, once they get out of that sandstorm, it it it, it loses the it, the film loses it. I feel it it, it drags. It's it's not as it's in, interesting or exciting as it is up to that point, and that's that's a shame. I think that's a shame. I wouldn't disagree. And and interestingly, the three words I wrote down first when I was thinking about this today was messy, flabby, and bitty. Um, and, and 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 they're not three little robots from a sci-fi film. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, the 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 fight in the car park. With the the the, the moving uh, car park bits were going up and down and, and stuff See, like I that. Even remember that. I, yeah, I, I just didn't find that interesting at all. It just it seemed really weird. I mean, I don't know if it's an actual place. If that's that's there is a car park with that kind of system, but it just felt some. It felt like it was out of another film. Yeah, I think it was one. I think it does exist, and it was a uh, a bit like the Bond producers do. It was one of those things where they were traveling around, and they were saying, "Oh, it would be cool to do a scene in here," and you know, sort of building it around the the set pieces, um, fitting it to the story. And of, of course, we get the mission accomplished line. <laughs> but um, but 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 here's the thing. I mean, you know, obviously by this point, um, JJ is actually co-producing with uh tom cruise so um you know it's it's a part bad robot production in fact yeah. i was thinking of this three of my you know three of the biggest franchises you know mission impossible star trek and uh you know star wars um jj is creatively involved in all of them it's like wow okay but um but that yeah, might yeah. be a good thing actually well i mean he he uh he couldn't direct this one because he he was committed to doing um Star Trek. super eight that oh, was it super no, eight, su- oh, super eight at right. this point. Okay. and um and uh so he gave you know brad bird a chance and obviously this is brad bird's live action uh directorial debut i mean he's obviously done great work with uh you know animation in fact uh, at the moment incredibles 2 is screening which is an amazing animation film that he's directed um and uh you, you know, he kind of sort of bought his very, very sort of flowing, fluid um, design to this. And what, one of the things I really liked in the film, this is the only one that's done it so far, but I, I loved it, is where they actually bought the light, the fuse part into the actual plot. And there's something that explodes at the end of it. You know, <laughs> So that was quite cool because he says to... Um, Paula Patton's character, who's, by the way, she's great in this film as well. Um, you, you know, he actually says to her, light the fuse and she lights it. And then we go into the, you know, Mission Impossible music and the opening credits thing. And then, of course, at the end, it blows up the tunnel that, that they were running through. And I sort of thought creatively that was a really, really nice idea to sort of put that thing in. And again, you've got great sequences like all of that stuff in Dubai is 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 very well done so um so yeah i you know i i thought this was a decent decent entry as well it's quite interesting that uh that you guys maybe don't think so so um, it's funny because yeah. i think the only it's really no but it, equally it's interesting to me hearing you know some of the different take on it i think 
for me, the only thing that exploded was probably my patience at the end of it. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a real shame because, uh, you know, Brad Bird had made a great sort of uh, superhero spy mashup with The Incredibles, the first one. I mean, you got that real sense of like, you know, 60s spies films, especially uh-huh. with the, the islands that they go to and the whole design of that. So, you know, I was, I guess I was expecting a lot more from Brad Bird's first live action film. And it does feel like he was, you know, managed. I think J.J. Abrams, it's, it's got a lot of his trademarks there, even though, funny enough, J.J. Abrams is very good at mimicking other directors. I still don't know what the J.J. Abrams style is, really, apart from lens flares. No, and I would completely, I would completely yeah. agree with you on that, because I, I don't think there is a particular style. But then mm. maybe because I'm not that struck on the Star Trek re whatever you want to call it, reboot, rejuvenation. Um, <laughs> partly because I, I was just never into Star Trek anyway, but yeah. also because I just don't think these films are, are any good. Funny, I saw In Darkness for the first time the other day. And I thought it was well, yeah, Into Darkness is fucking awful. I mean, I enjoyed I, I enjoyed the first and the third one. They're, they're, they're much better films. They're, they're, they're yeah. more enjoyable, but Into Darkness was a, a big misstep. Especially when, especially when they were going on about the fact, oh no, no, he's not Khan, and then they went, oh yes, he is. <laughs> yeah, we, we we've got a whole podcast on that that listeners can go back and listen to. So there you go. <laughs> but just to finish this on, on uh, MI, what are we on now? MI five four. 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 Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, what's also quite interesting is that in the same way that I've forgotten clearly, stroke wiped from my mind much of MI two. Um, even reading stuff online about MI4, and I'm still not remembering any of these bits. I mean, who remembered that Leah Sadu is in it? I did. Oh, I, I did. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, she's. she's I remember uh, her yeah. in Inspector, and she's she's sadly wasted and abused Inspector. But again, that's perhaps another podcast. Um, I was interested in Simon's point though about having um, a, a kind of smooth link into the the most recent film, Rogue Nation. Um, and sort of having them slightly blur into one. I think it's particularly interesting because for me, that's not the case because having dissed quite firmly Ghost Protocol just now, um, I really, really love Rogue Nation. I think it's, well, I'm not allowed to say which one's my favourite, but let's just say it's up there near the top. It's funny you say that because, I mean, the talking of the blurring of the, you know, the the point that you were saying about blurring the stories and I was saying it's become more serialised. I mean... What, what, one of the things that this film does, of course, which goes into um, Rogue Nation, then is is you know we've we've got we've got some new characters being introduced. You know we've got um, Brent uh, played by Jeremy Renner, who was who was going to be well, he was kind of initially. In fact, it's weird. He was the guy that for two franchises was kind of lined up as the as the guy that will maybe take over, and in both of them. Uh, you, you know, I, I think I think he's he's found his place as a as a supporting uh, character because obviously they sort of lined him up for the Bourne films uh, with that one, and then the rumor was that if Tom Cruise wasn't going to do any more Mission Impossible films, that that Brandt would sort of take over as the the head of the um, IMF team, uh, which obviously hasn't happened. So you know, they introduced him, but also. We got. I know Simon Pegg was introduced in the previous film as Benji, but 
we we get him in this as actually part of the in the field and part of the team and in some respects much to my annoyance slightly um replacing the ving rames character that uh luther that had been you know in well the only one apart from tom cruise to actually have been in every one of the films um so i mean what, what's your thoughts on this extended extended cast as it were turning it more into a team again like the uh like the source material i wasn't too bothered i think i've never been entirely convinced by the benji character i think and that may again be because I didn't really know Simon Pegg from his comedy work or from his TV work. So for me, I kind of first knew him in this. Um, and actually, it was interesting because I suppose it's not really in the side, actually, because you've asked a question. But having seen him subsequently in um, The World's End, I think it is, which I, I was really impressed with because he's very different in that. And, and I, was, I thought that was really good. But I've kind of grown to like him. And I think as we get into goes uh, to Rogue Notion, I think he's far more foregrounded in the story there. Um, and it's a bit more than just the kind of, you know, backroom guy, which incidentally is another kind of JJ Abrams um, alias thing. If you think of Marshall in, in that. Um, so for me, that worked okay. And Thing Rames, I again, never been entirely convinced by him either. Uh, it, I don't think I've ever been convinced by him much in anything apart from Pulp Fiction, but there we are. Yeah, I mean, I will put it this way. Simon Pegg, he, you know, lucky guy. He, he's done very well of, with being good mates with JJ. Let's let's just put it that way, hasn't he? But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I preferred him in in three as the sort of, you know, comedy relief sort of background character than necessarily being sort of one of the team. I mean, es essentially, you know, again, before this film, before they sort of expanded the team, it was very much that sort of bond feeling thing where, you know, Ethan Hunt was the central and the, the sort of main character and hero and Luther and whoever, whoever else would be there would kind of be, you know, the, the, the tech guy and the helicopter pilot kind of filling in a little bit like sort of Q and Felix Leiter from the, uh, from the bond films. Whereas, you know, from this film onwards, uh, from, you know, Ghost Protocol through, and I guess it's going to go into Fallout as well, is we've got much more of a a recurring team uh, thing happening where they tend to be in the field with Ethan as well. I mean, e even the posters, you know, all of the all of the posters have always been posters of Tom Cruise's profile, essentially. But I've noticed the last couple of films have actually included other characters in the posters as well, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> any any thoughts, Simon, on the on the sort of bringing sort of Simon Pegg's Benji in as a as a field agent and sort of putting uh, um, Luther more into the background? Any any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, my thoughts on like the latter half of these films is that that they they found a formula that they feel works for them. So hence why, you know, you have characters like uh, Simon Pegg returning and sort of playing a bigger part. And, you know, Luther was, a, Luther was the computer guy. He was the guy who did all the hacking. So now that you've got Simon Pegg there doing his stuff as well, 
you know, doing that job, it's it seems a bit redundant to have the two of them. I think it, it, they they have turned Luther into sort of moral support, really. But uh, maybe maybe in the this in Fallout, he has a bigger part. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. The thing I I don't enjoy about these films now is that, as I say, they got very they've gotten very formularic. They, as you say, they they're always going. Ethan Hunt and the team are always going rogue and they don't have much backup and there's always, you know, traitors and there's always a character who's gonna you you don't know where their loyalties are, but you do really. I miss the sort of having the director's stamp on the work. I mean, you could tell the difference between the Brian De Palma Mission Impossible and the John Woo Mission Impossible. Yes. But since um, Ghost Protocol... It's gotten very samey. Well, I, I'm going to disagree there, if I may, because I think, and this again is why for me there's a definite line between Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. Um, I think Christopher McQuarrie, again, who I wasn't particularly familiar with, um, really, really put a positive stamp on um, Rogue Nation for me. And yes, there are the action scenes and we can talk about those, but... It, again, as with the first film, and to me there was quite a good link between this one and the first film because you had a really good blend of really, again, unusual and interesting action scenes, but you also had the interest in location and atmosphere and character and kind of what you might call slow action. Um, so, yeah, you've got that opening sequence, uh, as you were saying, Simon, um, hanging on the side of an A400 plane as it takes off, all done for real, which did look absolutely brilliant when you see it on the big screen, because you can see the sun hitting his face and you can see it's Tom Cruise. Um, But you've also got that amazing opera house sequence, which is one of the best action, although there's not a huge amount of action in it, sequences that i've seen for a long time and it's very old school it's very clearly shot you know it's a really complex scene because you've got two different assassins and tom cruise and a victim in the middle of an opera house um all done in the middle of a performance and yeah i I love it yeah it works incredibly well it's a really long scene it's about 10 or 15 minutes it was done so much better than what they tried to do in um you know quantum of solace where they, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was trying not to even mention that, but I was I was horrifically reminded of it as I said that. But yeah, yeah. right. And I think it was again, it was very old school. I gather, I may be wrong in this, but I gather there was a bit of Chinese finance in this, and it's been suggested that some of the atmospherics around what London looks like, because it's a very kind of Victorian London with a lot of fog and shadows and things. But again, not in a kind of cliched way, but just in a kind of traditional way. It's been suggested that there's a bit of a nod to, to them there about, you know, giving them what they might expect. But I, I don't think that really matters if it's true, because for me, there's, it's a really good balance between old school. Again, that kind of European feel, a bit of the noir to it as well. It had a bit of a Hitchcock feel to it. Again, you know, definitely with the uh, the stuff at the uh, the opera it had a real Hitchcock, Hitchcockian feel to it. But also, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, these films, they're they absolutely have to appeal, um, you, you know, to the uh, to the Chinese audience and whatever um, as well now. And uh, you, you know, obviously that kind of started off with with the third film. And 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 I agree, they they seem to be sort of uh, 
you, you, you know, doing those things that they want to see in the, in these films as well. And, uh, and, you know, in, in a good way, in a good yeah, way. And I think as with, um, some of the other films, although not that many, but I think for me, one of the big positives of this film, and again, I think it differentiates it from the other, the, the previous one, um, is having Rebecca Ferguson in it because again, she was a discovery for me. I'd not seen her in anything before. Um, it, it's a kind of, again, a, a slightly old school look because she's, you know, she's not a kind of typical sort of Hollywood glamour person, but she's incredibly attractive and really, really plays the part well. Um, she's not just the sort of Dolly Bird and, and that. Uh, and obviously, as we were alluding to, they've carried on her, they've carried the director, they've carried the main villain as well through into the new film. Um, and as Simon said, remains to be seen what, what that might look like. But I think I, I certainly see where, where you're coming from, Simon, on that, that issue of the sort of blending. I, I Personally, I don't think it's quite as, as smooth as that. But as I think we all agree, there's a definite change, you know, from that fourth film onwards. Um, and yes. whether, whether that's good or bad, I guess, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Well, I mean, for me, it's I'm not a fan of it. I think that was, it was the unique thing about this series of films was that you got the director's uh, stamp on it. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I, I kind of missed that. I mean, as bad as Mission Impossible 2 is, it still, as we've said, feels like a John Woo film. It, they took risks. Now they just, now we know how to do it. We know how to make these films. We know because... Um, I I enjoy Christopher McQuarrie's work. I mean, I, I enjoy Way of the Gun, which was his uh, directorial debut, and I also liked. Um, oh God, I'm trying to think of the film that uh, came out before um, Rogue Nation with, with Tom that he'd done with Tom Cruise. Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher. I really enjoyed yeah. Jack Reacher. I'm a fan of the books, and uh, you know, even though Tom Cruise doesn't look anything at all like the character in the book i mean he's way too short <laughs> he doesn't look like yeah. a marine but uh, you know i i really enjoyed that film i thought the sequel to jack reacher was terrible it's cruises it's cruises second franchise now you know obviously mission impossible being his his first and uh and Jack Reacher, and Jack Reacher's kind of the anti-Ethan Hunt, isn't he? <laughs> yes, very much so. Like, yeah, the Jack Reacher stuff is 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 a much more realistic um, portrayal of you know of the man who comes into town and sorts the problems out. I mean, that's that's who that character is. He's like the Bruce Banner. You know, he walks into town, he deals with whatever the problem is, and then he walks back out again. Well, I think, I think Simon identifies, just going back a little bit, I think Simon identifies a really important point, and, and um, Keith, you touched on it as well, that inevitably any big creative thing that isn't absolutely tied with one person like, you know, George R. R. Martin or something like that, um, is inevitably going to get the rough edges smoothed off and the ambition and, you know, the risk, I think you said, Simon, mm that that just dies in the end and i think you know let's not even get started on star wars but i think that would be that would be a fairly simplistic argument but it's certainly one that people have made and i think you know with a degree of of logic to it and i think on the one hand you've got 
I, I know we did run it slightly, but I think for me, Macquarie does show a degree of individualism that I think I could live with. Again, it'd be really interesting. It's a bit like the Bond films, actually. If you think of the two that Mendes did, theoretically, that would have worked because, you know, I really loved um, Skyfall. I thought it was brilliant, but I thought Spectre was dreadful. So it'd be really interesting to see what Macquarie <laughs> does with this with this next one. Um, yeah, exactly. yeah. I, think, I think I think I think it's. It, it sounds like Simon really likes, you know, if you can't have a, quote, good MI film, then at least you can have a good film of that director. And I can certainly see the positive in that. Um, and, and I can certainly see how, you know, if you get a film that doesn't appeal to you in, on either of those fronts, you know, you're going to struggle a bit. And I and I, I think that's a perfectly valid point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there has been a, um, you know, Tom Cruise's initial intentions with this franchise was to have you know, every film in a completely different style, but using, you know, the Ethan Hunt character and the Mission Impossible, you know, um, trope and storyline and whatever. Um, and, you know, Christopher Macquarie, he's not, he's not actually credited, but he, he did do some of the rewrite and some of the setup on on Ghost Protocol. So, he, he, you, know, you know, he has obviously the, the continuity, if you like, that's that's involved in the last, you know, three films, um kind of yeah it comes from that because it's coming sort of from the same writer uh, as as well as the guy helming it so um yeah and, he, and he's know. clearly got he's clearly got a relationship with Cruz, you know through other films that he's written mm. and involved in whether it's edge of tomorrow or valkyrie which i think is rather underrated personally yeah yeah but also he was the writer of the mummy and that was such a successful film yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you say that as so though you're surprised. So. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, hmm. that was a well, you know, not not every, not everything Cruz does is great, <laughs> but you know, uh, but we have bigged him up a lot here. But but um, I, I'm sorry, I'm conscious of time as well because mm. we're not going to complete our mission, are we? <laughs> we're, we're, it's going to self-destruct. It's going to self-destruct. Yeah, um, but. Uh, let, let, let me ask then one question. I mean, I've got a little thought on this, which uh, probably will never happen. But who um, who would you like to see direct a, a Mission Impossible movie? I'm going to let you guys have the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had a little thought that, yeah. that um, I, in some respects, I know I know this is very unlikely to happen. But in some respects, I'd like to see Spielberg do one. And the the reason I say that is Spielberg and Cruz have got a good relationship. You know, they obviously did um, Minority Report and War of the Worlds together, you know, and, and they work well together. Plus, you know, one of the things that started the whole Indiana Jones trilogy or trilogy huh, series, I shouldn't say trilogy, sorry, series of films. No, is no, the fact that actually, uh, Keith, that, you're correct. It's a trilogy. A trilogy. We'll just yeah, forget yeah, the sorry, fourth film. In my head. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons that's, that that started was because Spielberg, you know, always wanted to direct a Bond movie. For, for me, the Mission Impossible films are are kind of, like I said, Paramount's answer to a sort of American James Bond. Um and, you know, I just wonder whether what Spielberg would bring to it and whether or not that would be, uh, you know, how that would come out. But it was just, it was just a side thought that I had. <laughs> oh, I think it's a fair one. And I think, you know, you could potentially posit people like David Fincher. Um... Well, he was attached to do um, the, th the reason there was a long gap in the production between two and three was because... Um, 
Fincher was originally attached to do it and but had very he and Tom clashed with their ideas of where they wanted to take it so Fincher and his crew that were you know his creative crew which were already assembling and even some cast I think that was attached I believe Scarlett Johansson was attached at that point as well they all um they all kind of left and then JJ retooled the whole thing I'm not saying it would necessarily work I'm not saying it'd necessarily be a good fit for it um but you know you could I mean there are lots of people you could you could imagine I mean people what about someone like um well Gareth Edwards I think would actually be quite good um I would have said Denis Villeneuve, but then I went and saw Blade Runner 2049, so I'm going to withdraw that. Um, And maybe there aren't that many women directors, of course, but maybe someone like Catherine Bigelow, although I rather suspect she'd think it's slightly below her nowadays. But um, Ah, you know, she'd do it really well. She would do it very well. That's a really good point. And, And good that you think of female directors, which is important. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So are we going to, oh, no, I suppose you could also, you could take it in a slightly different direction. You could have someone like Shane Black, but then again, um, I might have agreed with that, but I'm, I'm not even liking the trailers for the Predators. So no. I think yeah. we'll move away from that. Unless you, I've unless got, you want to see a feeling. Mission Impossible film set at Christmas. Yeah. I've got a feeling we might be having a Predator podcast sometime in the future. I don't know why, but I have a feeling. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, cool. All right. Although we've sort of kind of been doing it as we've gone along, but just for completeness, do we have to rate or at least pick our best and worst of the MI so far? Yes. You got to pick your best and worst. We are movie heaven, movie hell. So um, yes. And, and, and we usually let our guests go first. Damn, I thought I was going to push that one onto you guys, but okay. Um, I probably should do it in reverse order then, shouldn't I? So, for the hell, and I'm slightly torn, um, I would go for Ghost Protocol for the reasons that I've stated, um, but also worryingly because I actually remember it and I still hate it. Um, I would probably also go for MI2, but that's mainly because I don't remember much of it. I suspect if I watched it now, it might have a certain period charm, um, but I think it might be best left forgotten completely. So I think I'm going to go for Ghost Protocol as my hell. Um, as my heaven, I suspect it would, prob- much as I do love the first one, and I do, because it's one of those films that I've talked about telly a lot in terms of watching films on telly. Um, you can keep all your video on demand and all your streaming and all of that, you can't be coming across a film like that and thinking it's going to start in an hour and thinking you might just watch 10 minutes of it and you end up watching the rest of it. So much as I would like to go for the first one, I think I'm going to have to go for Rogue Nation because I really, really liked it. Um, I it would be interesting. I have seen it again since I saw it in the pictures and I still did like it. Again, you can never really capture that excitement of seeing something for the first time on the big, big screen. But I'm going to go with Rogue Nation as my heaven. Okay. Simon? Well, um, for me, uh, my movie heaven is uh, Mission Impossible 3, as I sort of stated earlier. No surprises. Uh, But for my hell, I'd actually go with Rogue Nation. Oh, gosh, really? Yeah. 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 Um, This is is the first film that I didn't see at the cinema. Mm, I've seen all the rest at the cinema, apart from this one. 
Uh, I caught this on uh, TV and uh, I must admit I wasn't that impressed and life of me I cannot really remember much of what happens in this film you know even though it's the sort of probably the the, the last one I've seen you know it's the most recent and I the life of me cannot remember much of what happens in this film I can remember what happens in the first one, the second one, the third one, and even the fourth one. But the this is why it's my hell. I think it's very... I don't remember much of what happens in this film. There's not much that stands out. I mean, it's there's, again, there's all these sort of similar tropes. No, I, think that's, wow. I think that's fair. And I think, I yeah. think particularly in light of, you know, how you described your sort of journey through them all, I, I think that's, that's fair. Mm. So have I got this right that your hell is Chris's heaven? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That'd be a wow. fun pairing, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe we could watch half of it each or something. <laughs> wow. That's all right, okay. Chris. You can watch the whole thing. I don't mind. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. So come on in, Keith. Where do you stand on this? Well, it, it's really tough because I absolutely love the entire series of them and I can't wait to see the sixth one tomorrow. Um, I'm hoping I'll be saying that six will be my heaven once I've seen it. But uh but no, uh, for me, um, movie hell is is Mission Impossible two, and I do say that with the caveat that uh, it's it's the least Mission Impossible of all the films. Although, you know, it's an incredibly entertaining, although ludicrous action film, and I actually love it as a film in its own right. But as as part of the series, I would pick that as the worst one for me. And the, the heaven one is really hard because, you know, I, I hear all your points and I'm really loving these films. And, you know, I, I'm a big JJ fan as well, as, as, as I often mention. Um, but I'm going to go for, for heaven. I'm going to go for the first film. And I think that that's I think there's a lot of nostalgia that's playing into that for me. It's probably the one I've seen the most. And uh, it was it was the film that came out the summer that I started film school in the US. So it was a really big deal for me at the time. And and, and I loved it. And, uh, you know, yes, they, they kind of betrayed the Jim Phelps character, um, which which, you know, is problematic. But in terms of, you know, the style of the film, uh, the continuation of the series from from all the other aspects um, I really love it, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna choose Mission Impossible One as my heaven. Well, I think that's really interesting, and I think you'll all be aware that there is this thing going round. I don't know what the word is. It's not a trope, and I'm pretty sure it's not a meme. But anyway, um, that says that the good ones are the odd numbered ones, and the bad ones are the even numbered ones. So it'll be really interesting, <laughs> and that, that's quite a neat idea because it. It covers the sixth one either way, doesn't it? <laughs> it's the Star Trek rating system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that. Well, you know, it may have some legs because, I mean, for me, I absolutely agree with it because, as I think has been pretty clear from what I've said, um, for me, it's bang on. And I think, but just going back to, to Keith's choice, his heaven choice, it's probably fair to say that I don't think any of us would, none of us would fight if any, each other if someone suggested sitting down and watching the first one, would we? So that's probably a good kind of end point. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this podcast is, is going to self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just hoping you press save all the way along because otherwise it's really <laughs> <in trouble. laughs> 
Yes, I, I do apologise to listeners if the audio quality from my side has not been so good on this film. We had a slight technical issue and I couldn't use my uh, wonderful microphone that uh, that Pete Mealy gave me for this episode. But there you go. Never mind. What you actually mean is you're talking through a mask the whole time. Mm. That's right. Yeah, I've got my uh, Tom Cruise mask on. <laughs> yeah, I live in hope. I thought it was your J.J. Abrams one, actually, but... (laughs) Um, The glasses. (laughs) No, you'll find it's J.J. Abrams who wears the masks. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. So uh, loads more, you know, we could delve into, but that's that's all for this one, I guess. Yes. So, uh, Chris, where can people find out more of your, about yourself and your work? Uh, do you have a website, uh, social media? Yeah, uh, they can find me at www.chrismrogers.net. That's chrismrogers.net, uh, where there are a range of long-form articles and a blog page, which doesn't get updated as much as I'd like, but there's plenty of film-related stuff uh, across that whole website. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn as well, um, under my name, obviously, um, where you can find a, a, a summary of um, some of the things that I do, particularly in this sort of architectural field, which is my big thing. But um, yeah, that's me. And you have a book, don't you? Um, I've contributed my latest one I've contributed to, uh, which is 32nd Paris um, by Ivy Press which is a book of essays looking at Paris in a slightly different light, um, different themes, different ideas. Um, 30 seconds is all it takes to read each article. Um, so it's quite a nice little package there. Um, and you can still get my How to Read London and How to Read Paris, which are my own books, um, little architectural canters through um, a thousand years of history of each city. There you go, from all good book booksellers. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Keith, where can people find your work? Yeah, uh, you can, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, that's E-Y-L-E-S, as in my last name, you can see some short films that I've made there. In terms of other work I've done, if you put my name into IMDB, you can see uh, past, present and future credits of things I'm working on there. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so through the podcast. And as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and all good podcast providers. You can follow us on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. It all helps. So that just leaves me now to thank uh, Chris for coming on. Thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you for asking me. And I hope uh, you, the listener, join us for another episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds.